This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Insurance Professional Resources. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Jack Delaney and Kristen Worley from the Marshall Dennehy Law Firm. Jack Delaney chairs the Catastrophic Claims Litigation Practice Group at Marshall Dennehy, which is one of the country's largest law firms devoted to civil defense litigation. Residing in the firm's Philadelphia headquarters office, Jack defends catastrophic, high-profile, high-exposure cases against some of the country's most formidable plaintiffs' firms. He has taken to conclusion more than 60 jury trials, as well as hundreds of bench trials, arbitrations, and mediations. He and his team represent clients in litigation involving fire and explosion claims, sexual assaults, negligent security, and hospitality and dram shop claims. Jack also handles specialty, high-risk claims in the areas of amusements, entertainment, recreational sports, and specialty events. Kristen Worley co-chairs Marshall Danahay's Catastrophic Claims Litigation Practice Group. Kristen has 22 years of litigation and trial experience and works closely with Jack in defending the group's clients. Kristen has vast experience in the areas of product liability, premises liability, commercial motor vehicle, and more. Her results-oriented approach and case management method- methodology is appreciated by clients facing complex legal challenges. She has tried cases to verdict in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York, and resolved hundreds of cases throughout her career through arbitration and private mediation. Kristen routinely defends high exposure matters in her practice and is well-versed in the type of rapid response required to immediately protect her clients' interests when catastrophic events occur. Today's topic is managing catastrophic claims and making every second count in the process. And for our first question today, Jack, we'll start with you. What does a strategic rapid response entail from an attorney's perspective when confronted with a catastrophic event? John, that's an excellent question. Um, I have, I'm fortunate that I could draw from my 35 plus years of experience of dealing with every kind of catastrophe you could mention, whether it's a power plant explosion, a chocolate plant explosion, a major fire in a residential building, um, a building collapse, whether it's Philadelphia or Surfside or a big fire in London. I've been able to draw from that experience and use that experience in coming up with this strategic response plan for the benefit of our clients. And what we do is the bottom line is you are there to protect your client's uh, best interest. And basically, you need to make sure that you are not myopic. And that is that you understand your client's best interest is their ability to protect their reputation and goodwill their ability to be an ongoing viable business. And that means relationships with their vendors, their employees, the community that they are in, and their ability to move forward from a catastrophic event. That's a difficult task because you have to realize that if there's a catastrophic event, um, unfortunately, a lot of times there has been a mass loss of life or people that have been seriously injured. So you need to make sure that your client responds in a very sensitive way, that it doesn't inflame the potential jurors are out there or inflame an adverse governmental response. You need to make sure that you assure the public 
your coworkers, your, your clients, your business, and the community at large that you are investigating the issue and you're going to find out what happened and make sure that nothing like this happens again. And the way that we make sure that the legal interests, the client's interests are protected is we sort of have a checklist of what we go through. The very first thing is that we are prepared to respond to these events. And that is we have our team, our technology, our policies and our procedures in place to protect our client's best interests. We, we approach these situations a little bit different than most firms. When I say our team, we literally have a team of experts, a team of different types of attorneys. So when we respond to an event, we'll go to the site and we'll make sure that we do everything um, that we preserve all critical and appropriate evidence, not just at the site, but also outside of the site, whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, blood tests in, in coroner's reports, we do an expanded search to preserve the evidence. We also, at the same time, advise our clients to put a litigation hold on to make sure that they don't um, destroy any key evidence that may create an issue in the future, spoilation or things of that nature. So that's one of the things that we're doing right away. When I say that we have specialty attorneys, uh, attorneys, a lot of times these uh, events involve also have a layer of potential criminal culpability. They have administrative issues. They have insurance coverage issues. They have ongoing business disputes and their ability to operate. So we make sure that there's not just me there or my team there, but they're addressing all those other legal needs as well. Then sort of the checklist that we go through is we make sure that, you know, when we preserve the evidence, that we preserve it in such a way that uh, what we are now doing, it's called visual persuasion. And that is, in essence, a trial attorney is a storyteller. And what happens that out there at that site is the potential content that you will have for a future story that you're going to tell the public, but more importantly, the jury that you're going to talk to eventually. And so you are developing content for that story as this catastrophe unfolds. And so you have to think ahead, sort of think it, think this thing to the end. What is the ultimate story and theme that I want to tell? Then we sort of go through the checklist of we want to make sure that we send out uh, notices to all potentially culpable parties that there is an incident has taken place and they should put their carriers and uh, key people on notice that there's gonna be a site, site um, visit and investigation. And that's key because I'm always dealing with the tug of war that a business wants to get back up and running versus my ability to give all potentially culpable parties an opportunity to view the evidence and take a look at everything before um, before that evidence goes away. Because a lot of times you're there and the evidence only lasts for you know an hour or two hours or a day or three days, and then it's forever gone. So timing is the key. And that's why we say every second counts. After that, we wanna make sure that our client tenders all, you know, to all their potential insurance carriers, their primary, their excess, et cetera but they need to expand the scope 
Are they the beneficiaries of any additional insurance? Should they be tendering to anyone else? Should they be tendering to anyone on a contractual defense and indemnity basis? They need to make sure that they do that as well. And then we do a deep investigation, you know, in the surrounding areas. You know, every there are so many um, contraptions out there where things get recorded. And there's amazing, amazing cases where you've been able to do this. Give you an example. Philadelphia, uh, in Philadelphia, we had the Salvation Army uh, Philadelphia building collapse. We were one of the firms that were involved in taking a look at the bus videos that actually showed the collapse. We were also the firm that discovered that there were contractors across the street that actually showed the beginning of the collapse, as well as different people who walked by on a daily basis showed that there was this collapse that was actually in process. It wasn't a singular day event, but it was a building that was slowly collapsing. And so we really do a deep dive um, and make sure that we have all the content to uh, that we need to ultimately tell our story. The other thing that we do that a lot of other firms don't do is we do a deep dive on an early case assessment. What is the potential liability in this case? Who are the witnesses that we're going to rely upon? Are there documents that we have to worry about? And what we do is we team up with a jury, a jury consultant, uh, somebody who's a courtroom psychologist, and they assess this and we make an early assessment because every case resolves. So the question is, do you resolve it early on? Can you resolve it in a piecemeal fashion? Can you resolve it in a global fashion? Or is this something that you're going to have to go through years of litigation before that resolution settlement point arises? So we make sure that we do that as well. Then there is the basic uh, framework that we use. We actually set up and uh, a safe room. And a safe room is a document repository as well as a place that people could collaborate with each other in a timely manner as the situation unfolds. And that is key. And what we draw upon is basically different programs that the Defense Department use, different Adobe programs, that there can be collaboration timely collaboration with key evidence, et cetera. As we are doing that, that we make sure that we are protecting the, our, our attorney-client privilege and our work product. Um, and that becomes difficult when sometimes in these situations, just to give you an example, the site gets taken over by a governmental agency. For instance, in the West Redden uh, chocolate plant explosion, the NTSB took over the site. So they control the site, they control the information, and it becomes a lot more complicated. Uh, with a grain mill explosion, it's the Chemical Safety Board. When it was the Surfside building collapse, it was NIST. So you need to make sure that you have a plan to deal with those agencies to gather the evidence that you need um, and move forward. Ultimately, you need, to portray, you need to send a message to the public that you're looking at this, you are sorry that this happened, that you are sensitive to all those issues, those emotionally charged issues. But the bottom line, when it comes down to everything, you're there to protect your client's best interests. And that's what a, a strategic rapid response plan addresses. So, Jack, after a catastrophic event happens, are there ways to avoid litigation and judicial hellholes? 
it's tough. It's real tough. And it's an area that is is really of a concern. Just this week, I I got a jury verdict um, and I was trying a case in Philadelphia for about a week and a half, almost two weeks while I was in the courthouse in downtown Philly, which is considered one of the top judicial hellholes. There were three mega nuclear verdicts. One was for 10.6 million, where the defendant offered 50,000. Another one was for 175 million. And then the other one was for 1 billion. As those verdicts came in, I was sitting in the courtroom and my jury was out deliberating in my case. And I was scared to death. I didn't want to be the next mega nuclear verdict. And fortunately, the case um, came back you know, favorably for my client. Uh, we were happy with the result. But ultimately, um, we'd rather have had this case outside of Philadelphia. And there's the ways that you get it outside of Philadelphia is the first thing you want to take a look at. Is there any way to remove it to federal court? Typically, there's not. You need to have complete diversity or you need to have a federal question. The second way is is the Philadelphia in and of itself an improper venue? That is the jurisdiction. They don't have jurisdiction over your client. The problem here is that a lot of times plaintiff's attorneys will join different defendants just to make sure that they get the case in Philadelphia. Because the way the law is, is that even if your client doesn't have enough contacts to do enough business in Philadelphia, as long as one defendant um, has contacts, sufficient contacts to Philadelphia, Philadelphia becomes a, an appropriate jurisdiction. So the next strategy is a concept called forum nonconvenience. And that is, you know, basically to show that a other jurisdiction is more appropriate, another venue. Um, we're going through that right now in multiple cases, um, trying to get cases out of Philadelphia. And the key here is to build a record go out, get affidavits early on. When an incident happens, we don't wait for a lawsuit to get filed. We act in a proactive fashion and make sure that we start to gather affidavits that would support a record of why this case should be litigated in a different venue, a different county outside of Philadelphia. Um, so there are the three main ones that you want to concentrate on. The other one is a little bit novel and a little bit tricky. And that is there's a rule in Pennsylvania, it's called coordinated jurisdiction. And under coordinated jurisdiction, basically, if there is a lawsuit that's filed first in a different county, that county, um, if as long as the cases are similar and have similar interests, that county will dictate um, that other cases should be transferred to that county. That's very, very difficult to do. In 37 years, I've only had one case where that has been successful. So unfortunately, you know, a lot of times if you do business in Philadelphia or have contacts in Philadelphia, you're going to be subjected to the jurisdiction. And even if you don't, if one of the defendants that is going to be joined to the case uh, has business in Philadelphia, you'll be joined there as well. So it's something that needs to be analyzed right away and a strategy developed right away. So, Jack, catastrophic events can often have a criminal element and governmental response. How do you handle that? Yeah, you know what? I'm going through a, a perfect example. On July 5th this year in Philadelphia, I was to I was going to try start a trial on a case that uh, originated in um, in Wisconsin 
and it involved a grain mill explosion. And of course, the plaintiffs filed one of those cases in Philadelphia. Um, we got involved in the case later on. We were asked, because it was going to try, uh, we got it, and this happens to us a lot, we get parachuted into a, a case, an emotionally charged high exposure case at the last second because it's going to go to trial. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And we were asked to try the case. So one of the first things that we did was we filed a motion to stay because there was a criminal proceeding. Um, seven people were indicted out in Wisconsin related to this grain mill explosion. And we asked the court um, to stay the case in Philadelphia because none of those people would talk to us because they were worried about the Fifth Amendment. Also, the government out in Wisconsin had a protective order, and so key evidence was maintained and controlled by the Department of Justice. And that evidence obviously would have been extremely critical and important to our case and would have adversely affected our ability to handle the case. So a lot of times we will retain criminal counsel for guidance in those types of situations, but a lot of times we will also work with criminal counsel in, um, you know, we represent the same client. I represented Sean Benshop in the Philadelphia building collapse case. He was criminally charged. I worked with his criminal attorney um, in making sure that we, we did not adversely affect his ability to defend himself in the criminal case and vice versa. Um, in these types of cases, we, as I said earlier, we, we work with OSHA counsel or special NTSB counsel that those investigations may result in criminal sanctions, penalties, et cetera, that the Justice Department may um, utilize in your case. So it's key if you think that there's potential criminal liability or there's administrative uh, findings of fact and penalties and sanctions that you get attorneys involved that specialize in that area. And that's exactly what we do because what happens in those other forums may potentially have adverse impact in your civil litigation. And we're very cognizant of that, and we work as a team. That takes a lot of finesse and sophistication and experience to work in those types of environments. And luckily, we have a network of criminal attorneys and as well as special administrative law attorneys that deal with these catastrophic events that we know how to work together with and making sure that we're protecting all of our clients' interests. Jack, thanks so much for the thoughtful and informative feedback on this topic today. Kristen, we're gonna turn it over to you now. What role does public relations, the media and press play in a catastrophic response and can the negative press taint the potential jury pool? Good morning, John. So the press really has um, taken on sort of an immediacy uh, recently. Um, and the immediacy of that gives us an advantage really in looking at the facts of the case, seeing how people commit to a narrative of an event early on. It gives us an ability really to engage in lines of investigation that otherwise uh, we would not have. So the press is important. Um, we look at it, we monitor it. Many times it is our first notice that there has been an event. Um, and so we take that. And what we do is we then, um, 
when we receive an assignment, we take that information and we utilize it. We hire experts uh, that we believe will best serve the client's interests. Um, and so from that, we believe that we can get an advantage for our clients by continuing to monitor it. One of the things that we do know, however, is that um, particularly in the early days of an incident, uh, the press is not necessarily going to be uh, favorable to your client. And so we encourage our clients really to think long term in terms of wanting to respond to anything that's put out into the media. We really need to focus defense strategies and orient our clients to thinking long range. We want them to think who is when they are cobbling together a response to something that might not be favorable to them and to the press, to think who are we targeting in terms of a response. We want to make sure that anything that our clients say um, is responsive to the timing within which the statement might be proffered, that it's being offered in a way that's sensitive to everyone that is going to receive it. And we really just want to make sure that anything that's being put out into the public on behalf of the client is not something that could ultimately be weaponized really against the client. We want to make sure that we are exceedingly thoughtful in terms of when we utilize the press and when the clients utilize the press. One of the things that we are potentially mindful of is whether or not press can taint a jury pool. One of the things that Jack had mentioned that we obtain are jury consultants, and those consultants are constantly monitoring how press influence jurors' attitudes. Um, that's particularly important because the press is really the first one that's putting out a narrative for any given event, and our jurors' consultants look at how those narratives are received by jurors, who are the targeted audience for those press releases by given press uh, bodies. And what we then do with that information, um, when we should we hit the trial phase of any given case, we take that information and we utilize it to our clients' best interests to make sure that we are getting them an unbiased jury who has not had um, the receipt of any information that we believe would ultimately have them come into a trial biased uh, against our client's interests and not open to receiving the information and the defenses that we are going to put together for them. So Kristen, do you start analyzing potential exposure to your client when responding to a catastrophic event? Our exposure starts immediately. It is really, John, an ongoing analysis that we engage in. So when we are called out to a site, we, as, as Jack said, we have a team of experts that we go with. It is a dialogue that we are constantly having. Um, we have experts, as Jack mentioned, in so many different disciplines that we have at the ready, uh, depending upon the catastrophic event that, that comes to us. And so we have these men and these women that are ready to assist us in evaluating the evidence. And as Jack mentioned, sometimes we do not have full access to all of the evidence right when events occur. 
Uh, we have situations where, as Jack mentioned, uh, different government bodies come in and take control of sites, take control of evidence. So it's not a situation necessarily across the board that we have immediate access to all of the evidence all at the beginning. So we do everything that we can to evaluate the information that we have. We re-evaluate it every time new information comes in. And it is a situation that is really an ongoing dialogue between us, between the experts, between the client. Um, we want to make sure that we have everyone who has critical information at the table so that we can, at every pass, advise the client what their exposure is going to be. Um, it is exceedingly important that we have everyone's input into that. Um, it is multidisciplinary um, evaluation that we perform. So I'm sure it could be a very delicate situation at times. How do you balance human loss, suffering, death, and destruction with your obligation to protect your client? So Jack and I lean into that, really. It's one of those things where, as Jack mentioned, the response from your client always has to be sensitive. Um, and we are exceedingly mindful of that. We look at how jurors will receive information. Um, the press is a perfect example. They, they will likely generate the first narrative that a potential juror will hear about an event. Um, these catastrophic events necessarily engender um, significant uh, human suffering, loss of life, loss of property damage. All of these things come with very um, in-depth sort of emotional responses from people and deservedly so. Um, and so we as lawyers want to know how it is that prospective jurors are going to lean into those types of emotions. And so we look at that, we try and gauge what those anticipated responses, emotional responses are going to be, and then figure out what the best way is to A, acknowledge them um, because they are deserving of being acknowledged, and then how best to get past those emotional responses to diffuse them and then get these jurors to a place where they are open to receiving the defenses that we are going to put forth for our clients. So from our perspective, you have to acknowledge what those emotional responses are gonna be if you are to best serve your client's interests. Um, they need us to do that because the jurors are only human um, and they will have human responses to these events just like everyone does. And so you have to, in order to adequately protect your client's interests, understand that, and then be prepared to diffuse it. Jack and Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You've just listened to Jack Delaney and Kristen Worley from the law firm Marshall Dennehy. Special thanks to today's producer, Frank Bullwinkle. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash professional resources. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message.
Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.